Hello, this is Noelle with just a typical adhd -er, and I'm going to talk a bit about the TV series You, which is based on You, a novel by Carolyn Kepneys. The series is a refreshing examination of narcissism and misogyny and self-delusion, especially in this day and age, and it's got its really cheesy and sort of trashy elements to it, but I found it intriguing, if disturbing. The story follows a bookstore manager who stalks and attempts to court a graduate student. I reviewed the first episode on uh, my Tumblr, noellevivant.tumblr.com, so I'll just do a really short rehash of the premise. This Joe is handsome and considers himself chivalrous. He's played by Penn Badgley, and he supposedly falls in love with this woman called Beck, played by Elizabeth Lale. Immediately, I was interested in the fact that he isn't the stereotypical stalker in terms of movie and TV portrayals in popular culture. There's the idea that stalkers are very sympathetic and the only reason why they can't get the people they love is because they're ugly or somehow unsuccessful in this very shallow age. But Joe is not like that at all. He's successful. He considers himself intellectual. He's not in the rich upper echelons that Beck hangs out with. In fact, Beck's friends look down on him. But the reason why this is called You is because the story is told in second person. Joe is addressing you, Beck, like a diary he's writing to his object of obsession. This narration, of course, is incredibly eerie and unsettling, and I would say the strongest part about the show. It makes Joe the most interesting and realistic character, while most of the other characters are much more two-dimensional and even caricatures. Beck ended up winning me over, and there are a few episodes and segments that actually are from her perspective. I have not read the book, but I imagine this would be a little more successful in the book because I felt that Joe was an unreliable narrator, and I think that the author confirmed that, or at least those who have read said that he did seem uh, off kilter in his portrayal of other people and events. And in a TV show, it can be really hard to display that perspective, and they don't really make a particular effort for, towards that. So a lot of the other characters seem particularly warped. The only people who see through him, by and large, are really wretched. They're either manipulative or violent, and to me, it felt that Joe was perceiving them this way in order to make himself look better but you can't really tell that from the way they're conveyed, though the actors all do a decent job. And it also makes Joe look much more like the victim if these people are attempting to persecute him and then you see all their other transgressions. Perhaps what I took most from this series is 
how Joe operates from fear and despair. And that is what I've heard narcissists tend to feel deep down. And you can see it in a lot of people in real life and a lot of characters and historical figures. He needs to have control over Beck and most other women he dates because if he doesn't control every possible aspect that he can, and if he doesn't know everything about them before they know anything about him, he's at much more risk of becoming vulnerable and hurt and having his heart broken by them. And that is something that he is so fragile, he is incapable of dealing with. Other people, he doesn't feel the same way. If they're in his inner circle or if he has a fixation on them, sure. But if there's somebody in his way or they've fallen off a pedestal he's put them on, he's not going to feel as concerned about them being extremely hurt in comparison to him having his heart broken by a woman. But that insecurity and need for control was terrifying and identifiable as well. I think a lot of us have a hard time just letting go and going with the flow. Or if we do, we have a hard time connecting deeply with other people. Now, I refer to Joe as a narcissist, and my definition of a narcissist, in my opinion, is that it's a huge spectrum. So this is based on my personal experience with people, as well as what I've read and heard from all sorts of experts. It seems like, at this point, researchers and psychologists still haven't solidified, I don't know if they ever will, this is psychology, it's not a hard science, um, what their definitions of personality disorders are. I don't agree with people who say that personality disorders are purely classist or racist or sexist, and they're just ableist and an excuse to hurt people who are mentally disabled or have mental illnesses. Because I think that the way these personal uh, personality disorders are described can help people know how to interact with people who exhibit those symptoms. And sometimes the people who are really anti-personality disorder definitions become very victim-blaming. And they basically indicate that these people who are psychopaths basically, or have other conditions, wouldn't necessarily be so terrible to you if you treated them better. And they're not necessarily dangerous because they were abused themselves and it's a stereotype about them that's completely unfair and you should let them get away with things that you wouldn't let other people get away with because they have this condition. I think that's extremely dangerous and unfair. However, I still think that there is a lot of classism and sexism and all sorts of isms that go into the history of personality disorder definitions. So I don't wholly disagree with that. I think that they exist, but like I said, I think it's really on a spectrum and that we don't have any set definitions. People will disagree with what a psychopath is versus a sociopath versus someone with antisocial personality disorder. And then some people will say they're all the same. 
there's been a lot of debate about Donald Trump because some people thought it was offensive to say he had narcissistic personality disorder, uh, offensive to people with that condition. But he definitely exhibits the symptoms as far as I'm aware. It doesn't mean that everyone with the disorder is exactly the same. And so many people exhibit narcissistic symptoms based on their culture and experiences and all sorts of things, but they don't necessarily have a full-blown disorder, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't change their behavior or learn, whereas somebody who maybe is so extreme is incapable of learning how to empathize with other people because they've not practiced that enough and they're so locked into this way of thinking that there's it's it's too difficult for them to change and they don't want to. People I've known who seem to have some personality disorders, some of them have actually said if they went to a therapist, they would just lie to them to see what they would say. Or they go to a therapist in order to help themselves in other aspects of their life. And sometimes that can actually be helpful because they realize that even if it's very, very hard to change your thinking, and it always is, they can learn to change their behavior and it can benefit themselves in the long run. So that's kind of my disclaimer. I'm not an expert who's been studying this for years, but I still have a lot of opinions on this because my myths about personality disorders um, has led to a lot of problems for myself and friends because I had this more um, sympathetic, I guess, view of people like that. And it's easy to go one way or another and say, oh, they're just complete monsters and they act really wild and you can see them from a mile away. Or, oh, they're exactly like everybody else and you just need to treat them exactly like everyone else. I mean, the truth is we all have different issues we deal with based on all sorts of things, of course, biology and environment um, and obviously culture. And also I will say that people with personality disorders have almost always been severely abused. So it's not that the abuse excuses their behavior, but it really is almost ubiquitous. I also want to clarify that the personality disorders I'm talking about are mostly the ones that have to do with empathy, like narcissism and um, antisocial personality disorder. And I'm not referring to autism spectrum, which some people somehow confuse with uh, personality disorders. I mean, they can overlap, of course, but it can overlap with anything. And also, when, like, a psychopath, I want to say, is not the same as someone who is psychotic. Those words get mixed up a lot. But someone who is psychotic tends to have hallucinations. And someone who is psychopathic, I mean, they might also be psychotic, but it's a totally different issue. Somebody who is psychotic doesn't necessarily have any problems with empathy. I'm talking so much about narcissism because I felt like Joe was really an insightful example of a narcissistic, an extremely narcissistic person. And it made me feel more sympathy and understanding for narcissists, even though he, as a character, is uh, terrifying. <laughs> he does have the ability to 
feel pain and love. And it's just a certain limit on that. For example, he seems to feel close to his neighbor, Paco, this young boy who's a bookworm. He lives in a broken home, basically, where I think his mother's a drug addict and his mother's uh, boyfriend is really abusive. He also happens to be a former policeman, so he wields a lot of power and Paco's really scared of him and often will sit outside of his apartment reading. And Joe has been a bookworm for years and really sees himself in Paco. And I think he he genuinely wants to help him. He gives him books and tries to give him advice. However, it's also frightening that he sees himself in Paco because it may enable him to create a kind of empathy, but it's also reflective. As we assume Joe has been mistreated, we see a little bit of that eventually, but I, I feel as though there are a lot of other things that are hinted at that they don't go into. It's also alarming because if that has been normalized for him, how he was treated, and he thinks that helped him, I think at one point he even said that it helped him as his way to cope with it, then I was terrified as to how he would treat Paco, someone he supposedly cared about. He also supposedly loves Beck, but... It very much follows the pattern of abusive and narcissistic relationships because he is searching for someone to make him feel whole because he himself doesn't feel whole. And then he thinks he finds somebody. And you see that this is actually a pattern because he keeps having memories of the previous woman, Candace. In this case, he sees Beck and he puts her up on a pedestal and tries to learn so much about her so that he can show her that he is the perfect one for her. So he wants to be everything that she wants. And this is what is often described as love bombing. You just put out so much affection, try to be the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend as soon as possible so that you create an immediate sense of intimacy, even if it's a false sense of intimacy. And he demonizes his ex, Candace, which tends to happen is that the person eventually falls from the pedestal and that can end very badly because the narcissist feels really betrayed. It could be an actual betrayal, like somebody cheats on them, or it could be uh, just the person is a human who doesn't want to be controlled and in that way will end up posing a threat to them, which is terrifying. So he himself is completely uh, codependent upon her. However, whenever there are any problems in their friendship, which eventually turns into a very creepy romantic relationship, he has no problems moving on. And I found that in a lot of people I know, not necessarily narcissists, but just uh, a lot of people I know who are very codependent, the people who can't live without the other person, I feel as though a lot of times I see them move on the most quickly. So I guess it's just that need to be with somebody. He also has an inability to take responsibility for anything or for most things. Um, many of these statements I'll make are broad. He can go a certain distance, but no further. 
or he's very calculated uh, in how far he'll go. So with many things in his own internal dialogue, he blames her for things that he does. It's because he feels so strongly for her, he just cannot help himself. And he does all these terrible things, but it's because she is so intoxicating or because she makes such bad decisions. He also congratulates himself for helping her by causing her pain and trauma, which she then turns into something else. She is a writer, and that's part of his uh, attraction towards her. And so when she writes about some of the trauma that he creates, unbeknownst to her, he says, oh, see, this is actually helping you. He does everything he can to paint himself in a good light. Yeah, he compares his exes to one another and refers to his previous ex basically as pure evil. And so you have such a terror of what's going to happen with this woman who he's stalking. Um, but it's interesting because his love interests are very different. And I remember seeing one video about people recovering from abusive relationships, about how some people who are abusive. And again, this isn't everybody who's abusive, but people who are more on the narcissistic end will sometimes have very different romantic partners. They'll just be the opposite personality-wise, looks-wise, gender, all sorts of things, because they themselves struggle so much with their identity. They are reflected in what other people think of them and how other people view them, which again was something that actually made me more sympathetic with some distance from personal experiences. His very delicate and unformed sense of self was tragic, but mostly masked in self-assurance and his image of himself as uh, an intellectual and a chivalrous gentleman. He desperately wants to be loved and he wants to make Beck and anyone he sets his sight on love him. So he is attracted to very different kinds of women and he is, seems to be attracted to, quote, broken women, uh, unquote, because he wants to save them, which is great in theory, but it also is a sign that he's attracted to vulnerable people who would be more susceptible to him sweeping in and looking better than uh, everyone else around them. And also that they would be more... Uh, used to being treated the way he treats them, it'd be harder for them perhaps to see the signs of somebody who is abusive if uh, that's what's been normal for them. From his perspective, he's a protector. He tells himself he would never hurt someone, he would never kill someone, he would never hurt a woman, he would never hurt somebody he loves. But we don't actually know what's true because after not too long, you start to see very subtly that what he tells you and shows you in his memories and flashbacks are not necessarily reality because it's the narrative he tells himself. And that also explains how people 
can justify all sorts of crazy things, whether they have personality disorders or not. You see it on a national level as well as a personal level, as if you paint yourself as the hero of a story and yourself as the victim or vice versa. If you consider yourself the villain and this other person the victim, you can justify all sorts of behavior. It's also funny that he considers himself so much deeper than everyone else, and he sort of abhors social media, even though he relentlessly stalks social media, since he's attracted to this woman because the way he describes it, she has such a come-hither aura. She's actually slightly plainer than he is in terms of looks, and a lot of her personality is just quite pretentious and not too interesting, even though, like I said, she did grow on me. It just seems that he sees her as this sort of sexual and needy being, and that is not uh, deep in any way. It also shows how people with these disorders, and again, it does apply to everybody to an extent, it's just an extreme situation, can be very perceptive in certain ways and very much wear a mask that they believe is real or want to believe is real um, and read people and know how to behave and mimic them. I think that's kind of where people have this idea that psychopaths are really intelligent. I don't think that's actually the case. I feel like there have been studies done and that's not true. Not that you can actually measure intelligence. But to me, it's just that if you've been practicing thinking or behaving in a certain way for years and years, you're going to be better at that than other people. So if you practice lying all the time and you really believe or want to believe your lies, a part of you can put that mask on much more easily than someone who is not used to doing that or has no desire or need to do that. But he also has a side to him that gets completely off the mark. And that's his more disturbed side, where he can lie to himself to pretend something is normal, and then when it comes out, it comes across as so bizarre and unsettling. But if he is able to control that enough he can pull the map, you know, the wool over people's eyes. Because if there are a few moments and a few red flags, they're really hard to find in a sea of stuff that seems basically okay. And sometimes he lashes out and loses control, uh, like many of us do. But it's not necessarily in cases like being interviewed by the police or something that would be stressful to a lot of people, is when he loses emotional control and feels that he's been hurt or betrayed. The titles of the episodes are great. I don't know if they're taken from the book, but the second title, for example, is called The Last Nice Guy in New York, which is perfect because Joe thinks he is a nice guy in a very difficult day and age. And you see this a lot with um, many young men who feel frustrated that women will go for bad boys, but not for nice guys like them. And the dialogue surrounding the nice guy is that he's not actually as nice as he thinks he is because he's actually completely entitled to the women. He doesn't see the woman as an autonomous being. Obviously not everybody 
who is frustrated with not having romantic relationships is that, quote, nice guy, TM or whatever. Um, they can be genuinely good people. But it is a syndrome that I feel like I see a lot. And Joe is somebody who should have no problems uh, getting a girlfriend, but it's his view of himself that makes it so difficult. And it's his own personal demons, as uh, maybe even he would admit to, that are the problem, not the fact that women are just idiots. I like the fact that the people who created this series, by and large, had the intent of making this commentary. Because there are a lot of movies and series and books that come out that portray uh, particularly male characters who are abusive in, at best, an ambiguous light, if not extremely sympathetic light. It's frustrating to me when a lot of these creators say, oh, well, we don't know really if they're a good or a bad person. We don't really know what their intentions are. Yes, they beat up their wife or killed uh, their daughter or did these extremely horrible things, but, you know, they're just people and they deserve as much sympathy as anybody else, which completely pushes the women or the men who are victims to the wayside. And this also applies to female characters who are abusive, but you don't see that nearly as much. I feel like a lot of abusive female characters are either sexualized uh, or completely demonized and, and seen as evil, and they tend to be very rare. So the fact that the cast and creators seemed aware of Joe's extreme problems uh, was nice. The actor said um, in an interview, I'll just quote him here, he says, he's just wrong. The conclusions that he comes to are wrong. The things that he does are wrong. However right they, uh, he may seem to be along the way, the conclusions he reaches are just wildly inhuman ultimately. But then I think we relate to him along the way. A lot of people who watched the series, to my surprise, considering he was played by, I guess, a, a popular actor. I haven't seen him in anything else, but I, I've seen him in advertisements and things. And he was really cute and who tells the whole thing from his perspective. Like, I was just really surprised that so many people watching it thought the show was very creepy and that he was a terrifying character. One of the showrunners said, uh, and this is another quote, I think this is Sarah Gamble. Um, this was right after Louis C.K. Um, returned to the stage after some controversy with him sexually harassing, at the very least, some of his employees. And so Sarah said, we're a culture that is very, very focused on how we treat our male, male heroes. We're focused on the story, their triumph, their downfall, their redemption arc. And the story that people are interested in um, this morning, the one about Louis C.K., is the story of this particular man who has had this particular set of circumstances in his career and personal life. And there's not as much conversation that I'm hearing about the women that were in that story to begin with. So I doubt the show will single-handedly change the way we think about dudes in our culture, but I'm happy to be part of the conversation." Uh, end quote. 
it's funny that this story is all about Joe when it really does subvert that hero's journey idea because I guess I don't want to give too much away but like I said this is a pattern this is a cycle so it means that he has a very difficult time learning from his mistakes uh, that you're supposed to in the the hero's journey you are changed by your circumstances and as far as we can see he's not usually changed by his circumstances except for maybe a very short time like I said, it does have very cheesy aspects. I think some of the people involved worked on other uh, CW shows, which has a lot of really <laughs> corny stuff with extremely beautiful, skinny um, cast members. And it is interesting that it was originally on Lifetime and was not successful there, but on Netflix became much more popular, which makes sense because it is very bingeable, even though at first I was reluctant to continue, it did get me hooked. Interestingly, it was also turned down my Showtime. I don't know why. Uh, there might be more information out there. Uh, I just think it's interesting that a lot of channels will have plenty of shows about abuse and women and, you know, sexualizing women, but this one, I guess not. Maybe it wasn't lighthearted enough or didn't have enough nudity or something. I don't know. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the supporting characters are not as strong as the main character, but there are still some funny moments, like this awful, awfully pretentious writer who works with Beck, and the, the um, bookstore manager who works with Joe. And the bookstore manager is kind of a nice guy, but he actually seems like he's a decent guy. Like, he's the nice guy who pines for a romance. Um... But he and the, the terrible author end up getting together, and I was actually really happy about that. That's a whole uh, other part of the series is Beck's desire to break into the writing world and become a great author because she comes from a lower class background in comparison to most of the circles she's running in, which are these super rich people who don't need to work or go to school or anything like that. And a lot of them are extremely spoiled and shallow. Again, this is all from Joe's perspective. He also came from poverty. This is about a bookstore manager. So it makes sense that there are lots of literary references or at least I was reminded of a lot of different stories. Well, for example, Shakespeare, since I like Shakespeare, I did think of the character Iago, who is really obsessively jealous himself. And he sort of tries to infect Othello with that jealousy. He's jealous of his wife and is convinced that she's cheated on him, possibly with Othello. Othello is not actually naturally jealous, but Joe himself is extremely possessive. And so he sees this jealousy in everyone else. There's also, of course, you see shots of Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is perfect for, for Joe, who has a charming side and a much more terrifying side. Uh, Faust, a room of one's own, which is funny uh, in a very grim way because Joe s sometimes will put people in the basement of the bookstore, including this like glass cage that is meant to preserve old books. 
and he has personal experience being locked in there as well. Oh, there's also Richard III for another Shakespeare character because he's another manipulative uh, sociopath or whatever you want to call him who has an extreme loneliness, I suppose, that comes out at the very end. Otherwise, he comes across as extremely confident and charming. Certainly Lolita. He even remembers his ex wearing heart glasses and sucking on a lollipop, which is very much reminiscent of Lolita, which is another story about, oh, it's really disturbing. It's a book about a pedophile, basically, and Lolita is his victim who he worships and idolizes, even though the whole thing is in his head. And he doesn't mind the consequences to her. It's that he is just overwhelmingly in love with her, supposedly. Oh, another uh, example is The Collector by John Fowles, which was actually inspired by The Tempest and the relationship uh, between Miranda and Caliban. Or it's not really in a relationship uh, an assault or attempted assault is reported and we don't really know what happened but the collector is about a man who comes obsessed with this woman I think she's called Miranda she's an artist and he kidnaps her and puts her in his basement and just wants to keep her there and uh, there's it's reminiscent of that story because well for one his inability to learn his objectification, I mean, the fact that it's called a collector. He also collects butterflies. It's, he doesn't see her as a human. And also a kind of vulnerability that he has that doesn't fully match up with what he's capable of. There are parts that are like uh, Sweeney Todd, because there is kind of the corruption of this young boy of Paco, as there is in the musical Sweeney Todd, where there's this boy who's caught up in 19th century London and he ends up living with a serial killer basically uh, after being passed on from an abuser. Before that, he was in a home that was very abusive or an orphanage. And finally, I will say they reference Bluebeard. This is probably a spoiler, maybe not, but the final episode of the season is called Bluebeard's Castle, which terrified me because that's a chilling fairy tale. I guess to give a summary of Bluebeard, basically this rich aristocrat with a blue beard, this was in the 1700s. I think it's a French fairy tale, but you can also find it in other areas around the world, or at least in Europe, certain variations on it. He ends up marrying this very young girl and he's extremely wealthy and she lives in his castle. He ends up leaving and he tells her something to the effect of you can open all these doors, here are the keys, but you can't open this door. And I've seen this in a lot of other stories as well. And in some cases, even in real life, which is really, really uh, frightening. But this girl is very lonely. She's very young. And so of course she eventually opens that door. He's gone all the time, supposedly on business. And she finds the bodies of his many previous wives in the room and the blood on the floor. Uh, she drops the key in horror, but when she picks it up, she finds that she can't wash the blood out. 
And he said he would know if she went in there. And that's how he knows is that this magical key somehow absorbs the blood. So when he finds out, he tells her he's going to kill her. It actually has sort of a happy ending. I'll say that much. She gets rescued by family members. It's kind of like the male equivalent of the Black Widow, uh, where if it's a, a woman who kills her sexual partners, it's a man who kills his romantic partners. And there even is, at the very, very end of the series, a moment where, uh, spoilers again, uh, Beck finds a box that Joe has that the audience has seen briefly, but if it's not something that Joe wants even himself to acknowledge, he, he's not going to linger on it. But she finds a box with certain disturbing mementos in it. And there even seems to be a reference to the blood on the key because she ends up cutting her finger. She, she drops something inside the box and cuts her finger and the blood on her finger leads him to do a little bit more investigating into the bathroom and seeing like what she cut herself on and seeing if he can find a band-aid for her. And she even ends up writing about Bluebeard, comparing him to this fairy tale character and herself to someone who loved to be the princess but also loved the darker sides of fairy tales. And it's really quite powerful in the context and familiar, I would say, to many women and possibly many men. Beck herself is from a broken family and has a fraught relationship with her father and gets together with a lot of guys, many of whom are really awful. So when she sees this Prince Charming, she acknowledges she, she didn't realize that Bluebeard and Prince Charming were the same person. There is also a really cathartic, if ultimately tragic moment, in which someone calls Joe out on everything and basically uh, calls his entire narrative complete BS, saying that you tell yourself you're protecting people, you tell yourself you're this, you're this, you're this, but it's really just an excuse to have power over other people and to violate women, basically. And that, no, you are not just like everybody else. Cheating on somebody one time in a moment of crisis is not the same as, you know, for example, committing serial murder in a very calculated way. A few other favorite moments uh, include when someone is in the basement of the bookstore and uh, they're on drugs or they're withdrawing from a drug addiction and they think they keep seeing a ghost and the fact that it's his basement, his bookstore basement, makes it extremely spooky because a lot has gone on down there. Another telling moment is when he describes old books that he keeps in that glass cage. He describes those books as vulnerable to light and temperature and all sorts of elements and that that's why they need to be in there. It's to protect them. And it sounds just like how he speaks about Beck. Another haunting metaphor comes up when Beck goes to see a therapist. Joe has finally caught her in his clutches and as happens in situations like this, he's begun to isolate her from others. 
he describes this as protecting her and helping her, and it's because he wants to spend as much time as possible with her. But she starts to feel trapped. So their relationship falls apart. He ends up going to this therapist that she goes to in order to find out more about her. He lies about his identity enough to actually talk to the therapist about his relationship with her, using lots of pseudonyms and some pronoun switching. And the therapist gives the two of them the same metaphor. He says to Joe and Beck that Joe's new relationship, because he has moved on immediately to a woman who I actually really liked because she's very tough. She's kind of a bitch, but she's also very generous when she wants to be. Uh, And she definitely does not take being treated badly at all. So you can see this relationship is not going to work because she essentially wears the pants in the relationship. She knows who she is. When Joe eventually kind of manages to draw Beck back in because now that Joe has moved on, Beck starts to miss him. And now that there's distance, she starts to want him again. And the therapist says that Joe's new relationship is a house because Joe keeps talking about how great this is, how perfect his new girlfriend is, and blah, blah, blah. But somehow he feels something is missing and he's not sure about whether he should get back with Beck or not. Beck also says, you know, this lady's nothing like his type. Uh, I think he still really wants me and he's still lonely and misses me. The therapist says that Beck is the mouse in this house. And so what Joe needs to do is if he really values the house, he needs to ignore the mouse. It's just a pest. It's not something that should destroy his entire house. His first reaction is, I'm not the type of person who would ever kill a mouse. Now, nobody said anything about that, but of course, it's the first thing to come to mind. He didn't even say he wasn't going to kill the mouse. He said, I'm not that type of person. Beck says, wait, I'm the mouse? That's pretty ridiculous. What if I know for a fact that this man in the house wants the mouse? So the therapist advised her to leave the house, but she says he wants the mouse. I know he does. And the therapist says... Well, how do people usually catch mice? Maybe he does want you. And she realizes a trap. But this isn't a trap, right? Of course it is. Joe doesn't even seem aware of it. But it is, and it works. The therapist mentions this to her specifically because she said she left the relationship with Joe because she felt trapped. So in conclusion, this series is definitely not for everybody. It might be too over the top for some or too unsettling for many. If you watch a portion of it, maybe the first minute or an ad for it, and you think you can stand it, I recommend it. If not, I do not recommend it. But it definitely captured my attention and has stuck with me. There's also going to be a second season, which... I'm kind of looking forward to, but also kind of dreading. Well, thanks so much for listening. I know this has been a little bit long, but I'll talk to you next time. Goodbye.